You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking about the design and evolution of the Crystal programming language with Ari, who created it, and Johannes, who works full-time on its compiler. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you think about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, Crystal. So, joined today by Ari and Johannes. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Hello, I'm Ari. I live in Córdoba, Argentina, and I've been an engineer at Norring for about three years, almost three years. Yeah, I'm Johannes. I'm living in, in Germany, like near Frankfurt, around that area. And I'm working at Manas uh, since one year now, and I'm working on Crystal full-time there. Awesome. So let's talk about Crystal. For those who don't know, do, you know, either one of you want to just give a quick overview of what Crystal is? So Crystal was born with the idea that we really like Ruby, the way you could express yourself in, in that language. But noticing that it has some things that we, we didn't quite enjoy, which were the dynamic typing. So you would get errors only at runtime and performance. So Ruby was created with the idea that make programmers happy. And Crystal also has that same goal, but also trying to be a statically typed, compiled, so efficient language. Nice. Okay. So before we get into how Crystal was created, I actually already have a, a tangent. <laughs> so one thing that I'm curious about is my understanding, and you can you guys might know better than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that Matts, the creator of Ruby, was really into Alan Kay-style object-oriented programming through message passing between objects. And like in Smalltalk, for example, for which Ruby is therefore descended, you have this whole idea of you've got an object, you've got several objects, they communicate to each other by sending messages back and forth, and then they can decide what they want to do when they receive one of these messages. They can either say, okay, I recognize this message, I want to do something, or they can say, I don't recognize this, and maybe hand it off to somebody else to figure out what to do. So one question I have is that whole idea, I mean, it kind of reminds me of servers talking to each other, where they send you know, HTTP messages or whatever back and forth between one another, and then they can decide what to respond, which is, I guess, one of the original small talk metaphors. I wonder about how do you deal with, let's say you, you get a message at runtime, and it's something that you totally don't recognize, maybe because it came from theoretically some other object. How do you apply, or how do you think about applying typing to that? I think like the basic concept of that doesn't apply much to Crystal, I would say. Methods in, in Crystal are more like traditional functions with a little extra, I'd say. So of course you have some dynamics in there, but it's all resolved at compile time. So you wouldn't come into the situation that you have at runtime, a message or a method call that you couldn't really resolve. Got it. Okay, so that aspect of object-oriented programming is like not really a focus at Crystal. Is it still possible? You could receive an object that, let's say a string, and you want that string to contain an integer value and you parse it, and it's not an integer you would raise, but I don't know if that was the question or related to the question, or, or it was more about unhandled methods or unknown methods. Yeah, 
more about yeah so like let's say i'm like you know what i want to just send this object something that i am making up on the fly based on like what i read out of a file you know i'm going to send it a different message depending on that and just see if it wants to respond to it or not is that something that is still supported in crystal can i do that if i want to no okay interesting it's interesting to me because one of the topics that i'm fascinated by is how programming languages evolve over time and their sort of character evolves from maybe like what the original design goals were so i remember reading that so python already existed when matt's created ruby and i remember reading that in some interview that he talked about one of his goals for ruby was he wanted to be more object oriented than python around this like message passing idea but i think it's interesting that among people who like now you know however many decades later <laughs> i guess this is 1990s so at least two decades later the things that people like about ruby turned out to be at least in this particular case like that ended up not being one of the main things that people like about ruby in practice it's like the other things about ruby that people like about it that would lead people to still like a language that doesn't have that aspect but has these other sort of things that make it feel like ruby i guess i think object orientation is still a pretty strong factor of ruby especially like compared to python which has really different approach there but object orientation is also a word that has many <laughs> semantics attached. So message passing is just one flavor of that, I'd say. Totally. Okay, so it's like maybe less of the Alan K style and more of the Bjarne Strustrup, the, the more popular definition of OO, which is like C++ and Java and like classes and things like that. Got it. Yes, I was going to mention that reading a string from a file and trying to send that as a method is not possible. But you could, so in result you can define method missing like in Ruby, but that's resolved at compile time. So you could receive a message that someone typed that's not defined as a, as a proper method, but you can handle it in method missing and you say, well, I don't know how to handle that, but that turns out to be a compile time error. And if you can handle it, it should generate a method that will be typed at compile time. So you never get a, a, an error at runtime for these things. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so so at runtime, now I'm curious, and this is like we're getting into already into language nerd territory, but <laughs> as somebody who's working on implementing a programming language, I'm, I'm curious about how this works now. So I know there's a couple of different ways that languages will implement a feature like that, that sort of like runtime polymorphism. And so one is like dictionary passing, where like a function will have, or maybe an object will have some sort of dictionary or hash map type data structure that's like, I have all these methods that I know about, and then here's the functions that they call when somebody invokes one of these. And maybe you can like change them up on the fly. But it sounds like what Crystal does is actually it resolves all of that at compile time such that at runtime, there is no dictionary. There's not even like a dictionary or hash map maintained, which means that you can't change things at runtime. Like you can't change what a method means or does on the fly at runtime, but you also don't have, you have way less overhead. So it's going to run a lot faster. Am I inferring that correctly? Or <laughs> Yes, basically. So in Crystal, when you compile a program, then everything is, almost everything is resolved at that time. Like what kind of methods are there, what things you can call and what types they have. So that really clears up a lot of dynamic stuff that you would have in, in say Ruby or other scripting languages. But there's still some kind of flexibility, like with function pointers and all this kind of stuff. But it's really more traditional approach there to like what static compiled languages do usually. 
Okay, one more question on this tangent. So what about generic polymorphism or parametric polymorphism? So like, for example, let's say you have an array of things. Like in some languages, there's no distinction between a difference between like an array of strings and an array of integers. It's just like an array is an array. And then at runtime, they keep track of like, is each individual element a string or an integer, which has some overhead, but, you know, is, is very flexible versus saying, well, an array has to be either an array of strings or an array of integers, which means there's less overhead at runtime, but you have that constraint when you're programming. How does Crystal think about those things? Like how does a the compilation work? So each generic type, like you can have an array of string or an array of in32, and they are different types and compiled separately. Cool. And even you can have the sum method of an array. Well, it's actually defined on enumerable, and it's defined in enumerable for every array, which seems strange. But <laughs> like if you have an array of integers, and if you call sum, because every integer response like can be added to other integers, that compiles fine. If you call it on an object that doesn't have the class method, or the class also needs a, a zero method for the initial element, then it doesn't compile. So I guess generic polymorphism is implemented. Each type has its own type. Like nothing is shared between different generic instantiations. That's very cool. So it sounds like, okay, so Crystal's taking performance pretty seriously because... <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. there's another part to that, which is, so Crystal computes the entire type hierarchy every time you compile things. There's no modular compil compilation and there's no like an interface that knows, okay, like how to resolve methods at runtime, but by looking at a table that you were mentioning. So there's that. Gotcha. That's cool. So that seems to me different from what I've heard of in a lot of gradually typed systems like TypeScript, for example, where they're sort of like, well, you can do all the same stuff you could do in the original untyped language, but the types might be varying degrees of fancy and you still have all the same runtime overhead as before. It's just like now it's there's an optional type checking step. So it sounds like you're actually changing in a couple of ways we've talked about already, the performance characteristics of the language by using types, not just for giving you information at compile time, but actually as an optimization so that the compiled code runs faster because you're able to apply those optimizations based on your knowledge of the types. Is that right? Exactly. That's the main thing Crystal gets from these static typing. But I think it's it's not just just a performance thing, but it's also it helps a lot when you look at a, a program what it does as a developer to know that in the context that things evaluate that all that has been predetermined at compile time, you can be a lot surer about what types to expect. For example, a variable to be somewhere in your code. Sure. Well, that's the age-old debate, is a lot of people agree with that statement, and a lot of other people say that it's too restrictive, and it's not worth it, and it ties your hands and things like that. Yeah, I happen to generally agree with you, but <laughs> <laughs> but if somebody were here who, you know, there's plenty of people who feel differently. Yeah, but for those, I think the interesting aspect of Crystal is that it, while it's really strict in what the compiler does, the compiler also helps you a lot with allowing things to be inferred, for example. So as a developer, you don't have to write every type everywhere, but it just automatically happens to be. But it's still safe in the end. And there's a, like a, a really small example to, to show that. 
and it's that you can define a method that takes two arguments and adds them with a plus operator. And you can define that, that method in Crystal without any type restrictions, and it will work. Like if you pass two integers, it works. If you pass two floats, it works. If you pass two strings, because you can add these strings and they are concatenated, it works. But if you pass any other object, like, I don't know, char or bool, it will give a compile time error. And typically in type languages, you need some sort of interface or protocol or something to say, okay, these objects must respond to this method and return this type. And in Crystal, you don't, you generally don't need that unless you want to be that strict. Very cool. Do you even need for that plus implementation? Do you even need to annotate it at all? Or can you just say like, here's the names of the arguments and I'm done? Just the names, names of the arguments. That's awesome. And that method will work with any object that eventually implements plus. Like if you define a library with objects that define plus and conform to that, it would work. So does that actually compile out to multiple different methods in terms of like binary code gen or is it just one? Yes, it's different ones. Oh, cool. So it's monomorphizing compiler? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's awesome. And it also does multi-dispatch. So Crystal has union types, where a variable can be one of two types. Because you can have type restrictions, you can have a method defined on an int, uh, that receives an integer, or a method that receives a, a string. And if you have a union of ints and string, at runtime it will know which one to call. But at compile time, it will consider that both can be called, so the the return type is the union of the return types. Got it. Okay. So there is a little bit of runtime overhead there because it has to know which is which, right? There's some sort of tag or something. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. That makes sense. Okay. So you could actually have, using union types, you could actually have an array of, for example, string or int. <laughs> yeah, for certain. That's a major feature, I would say, that adds in some of more dynamic feeling into Crystal. And these union types are often just inferred. So you don't have to write that just if you, for example, you write an array literal with strings in it and numbers in it, then the compiler just takes the types from that. Yeah, that's cool. I looked into doing that for Rock, which is the language I'm working on. And I ended up deciding that since it's not necessarily going for that feel, basically there were some optimizations I could do to make the type checker run faster if I didn't have that feature. So I decided to prioritize that. But I also appreciate that it's pretty cool to just see it in action. It's like, this is written out exactly like it were normal Ruby code, but check it out. It's got all these optimizations going behind it, you know, in terms of runtime performance, pretty cool. So everybody's always got ideas that they have about, I wish a programming language existed that had these characteristics. But it's one thing to wish that it existed. And then it's another thing to sit down and commit to like, I'm going to spend years of my life working on this product because it takes a long time to make a programming language. So I'm curious for Crystal, where was the point? You know, what was the impetus where it was like, oh, you know what? I'm actually going to do this and not just like, it's going from the wish list to the, I'm actually going to work on it project list. So it actually started as a hobby project. Like I really like languages. Back then, I think I was using D or learning about D. Oh, D, cool. Also reading the, yeah, the, the compiler source code and learning about a bit more about that. And as I said, I, I really liked Ruby, except those two things. I said, okay, I'm going to try just for fun to see if I can make something like that. And without this idea of, I want this to be production ready or I want the world to know about this, 
I started as a hobby, and then I showed it in, at Manas to Juan and Brian, and they said, "Well, this is great. We, we could do it again as a hobby, or like see where this goes." And we continued, and I'm probably you know this, but when, when you start doing the language and you start seeing things working and like adding things and like more things work, and you say, "Well, like this was actually easy to do," or "Well, this was challenging, but we, we did it, and so far it's great." Uh, so we continued doing it, and eventually, Tomat Manas, Carolina, uh, posted it in Hacker News. Like it was always open source on GitHub, but we didn't mention it anywhere. And someone mentioned it in Hacker News, I think, and that's where it gained, like, or, or started gaining popularity. Like people started contributing and saying, "This might be a good idea. Let, let's see, like, if I can contribute or use it and, and try to improve it." And that's where it started to grow, and and I think it always was kept as a hobby for everyone working because it's nice developing it. But at one point, I guess there was the okay, let's stop adding things and let's start refining the things that we have and fixing bugs and polishing things to make this like something that's that will always work. And eventually, I started doing that. That's awesome. So you, uh, if I'm understanding right, it sounds like. There was never really a moment where you said, I'm going to make a programming language that is going to be used in production by people and all that. It was just like, this seems fun. Let's do it. <laughs> and then exactly. it just kind of grew from there. And like other people got excited about it and started helping out. And then it just organically evolved into what it is today. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. So Johannes, how did you end up getting involved in Crystal? Um, well, I was one of the, the people who somehow heard about Crystal. It was already pretty much in motion at this point. I think I first saw it like five years ago or something. I'm not sure where exactly, but I, somehow I came across it and said, okay, yeah, let's try this out. And well, I was already using Ruby before and I loved Ruby and saw Crystal and I loved Crystal and, and started playing with it and building a project and Doing that, I realized that there's many things that still are not perfect there and I can make a difference. So I started contributing to the standard library and later to the compiler. That grew just to doing more and more stuff and becoming a core team member and finally making my job to work on Crystal. Nice. So did either of you have any prior experience working on compilers before Crystal? No, I, I did not. <laughs> I mean, some little parser examples at university, maybe, but that's all. Uh -huh. Yeah, me, I, I guess I studied parsers at university, like LL, LR, I think. But I also was into the D language, and I started making an IDE for D that's for Eclipse. So it was like a the Java plugin for Eclipse, but for D. And the way the Java plugin works is by actually having a Java compiler <laughs> inside Eclipse and like having huh. all this information to provide useful auto-completions or type hierarchy or go to definition and so on. So I said, I'm going to do the same for D. Like I had a lot of time back then. And I got to do it by porting the D compiler uh, or at least the parts that I needed from D to Java. And while doing that, I guess I learned a lot of things. The decompiler is really well written and efficient too. 
but I didn't did a, a compiler or language before. I think I started reading the Dragon Book, if that's the name. That's the famous one, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't get that far into it. Not because of the book, just because of me. I don't know. Sure. I think I, 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 think I, I spent that time actually coding. Yeah, I think this is an interesting topic because I know when I was younger, I had this impression that writing a compiler was this magical thing that you had to have secret mystical knowledge to do. And then eventually, I think this is, I guess when I got into Elm and started talking to Evan, who created Elm, a lot more about it, I eventually just understood like, oh, a compiler is just a program. Like it's just, (laughs) it's a program that does stuff with files rather than with HTTP requests like I'm used to. And that's like, I mean, there's definitely some specialized knowledge there, but it's not fundamentally any different than anything else. Kind of reminds me of like, I don't know anything about doing like statistical programming because I don't really know much about statistics, but I still know that it's like programming. It's just, I don't know the statistics part. And it's seems to me, I don't know if this is your impression, but it's still just programming. It's just, you might not have the particular specialization of like, I don't know how a type checker works, you know, algorithmically, but it's like, it's still just code. Just like, I may not know the statistics, but it's still just code. (laughs) Yes, I agree. I actually gave a talk at Manas back then, like explaining a bit how the compiler works. So at Manas, we also did web development. The introduction was doing a compiler is actually like, you don't have to deal with databases. You don't have to deal with HTTP requests. It's just like, I don't know, code and files and things you define yourself. Yeah, that can be pretty nice. I mean, you don't have downtime in a compiler, really, unless it's, I guess, you know, connected to a package ecosystem or something. It's just like, yeah, there's the files. Go read them, do stuff with them. <laughs> I've definitely had a similar experience with Rock where I think almost nobody who's contributed to the Rock compiler, which is half a dozen to a dozen people at this point maybe like one or two of them ever did anything with a compiler before this everybody just kind of learned on the fly because yeah i mean it's as long as you know how to program it's just about learning the particular techniques of whatever section of the compiler you're working on that's about it it's a lot more accessible than i think a lot of people assume certainly than i assumed when i was younger so how do you onboard new contributors like if somebody says like johannes i mean i guess you went through this process somebody says I like this language. There's this thing about the compiler that I wish were different. Everybody agrees would be a good change. I want to be the person to make that change. How do you go from having that idea to actually becoming a contributor to the Crystal compiler? Well, obviously it depends on what the person is capable of doing. But in my case, I just looked at the things that I wanted to change and I made a PR and then posted it and, and somehow it got accepted and then merged. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that that's at least what happens like often that just people show up, post a PR, hey, I found this, that would be nice, let's do it. Or maybe start with opening an issue and just talking about stuff. That's usually the, the better approach, especially when you're, when you're new. Do you remember what your first PR was to the compiler? Like the first change that you were going to make? No, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's been too long. I'm pretty sure I could look that up, but I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure I didn't start contributing to the compiler right away. But yeah, just focusing on, on standard lib features. That's definitely more approachable than the compiler, I would say. Yeah, I found that to be the case too, but maybe that's not intuitive to people. Can you say more about why you found getting into the standard library more approachable than the compiler? Because that's the APIs that I directly worked with. When I, like I, I wrote a, 
a template engine in Crystal. That's my getting to know the language project. And doing that, I noticed there are here and there, there are edges that need some sharpening. And so I, I worked with whatever, the string API or whatnot. And it was super easy to do just dig into the code, how is the implementation of that, because it's, it's just there or written in Crystal. And then you can just start making changes there like you would do in your own code. I see. What's the compiler written in, by the way? Also in Crystal. Okay, so there's yeah. no language barrier there. It's just like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, Crystal, you can, yeah. Even for a compiler, it's very approachable as well, yeah. Cool. And one of the nice parts probably is that What's really complex about compilers is probably optimizations, and we have just outsourced all of that to LLVM. Uh, <laughs> so we, we just have to care about meeting LLVM's API, and, and that's it. So for those who don't know, do you want to just give a quick overview of what LLVM is and how you're using it? Yeah, it's basically a compiler backend, which we just tell, okay, we want to generate these functions, and we want to define these types, and LLVM takes that information and generates the machine code from that. And it can also apply lots of awesome optimizations on this information. Right. So instead of you're having to say, here's the exact bits and bytes that need to be written to the executable, you just tell LLVM, which is a library that just has its own functions or whatnot, like, you know, I have a thing that's like a function and it's got these argument types and generate me one of those <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, obviously the implementation of the, the function is also provided by us, but then this is in, in a kind of intermediate language for LLVM and yeah, it just goes from there and, and takes up the job for finishing up the product. Right. That's very cool. So I'm kind of curious, like another topic that I found pretty interesting when it comes to programming languages is how they go from not existing to getting some adoption. So you mentioned that like some people shared like, I guess the GitHub repo on Hacker News was one of the earliest ways that it got shared around. But something I remember from Elm like in the early days was that a really common source of new people was things like blog posts and conference talks where somebody would have some piece of news or like a benchmark or some milestone being reached. And that just sort of generated a whole bunch of not only renewed interest, but also just some people sharing that and other people finding out about the language's existence for the first time from seeing it being shared. Have there been any moments like that in Crystal that were notable for like a lot of people found the language through like a blog post or a talk or something like that? Yeah, I have really bad memory, but I think that many of those cases, I don't know if like they had each, they had like a huge impact, but maybe if you count all of them, they added a lot in the end, but there were blog posts, there were small conferences organized or not, not conferences, but like meetings that says, okay, like, like let's meet and discuss things about crystal happening like everywhere, like in Europe, Japan, Slack exclusive to crystal in Japan appeared and we heard about oh, nice. it or, or requests to approve a translation of the main site in several languages and us adding a, a subdomain for it. So I think that there were there was always a lot of activity. I think some frameworks appeared. The Lucky framework that was started by someone from Thoughtbot, which was a hmm. or is maybe a, a known company, and they also have like blog posts and so on and so on. 
But I don't know, Johannes, do you remember any such events? Well, I suppose most of them, <laughs> those who had a bigger effect probably were before my time. Since I've been in the community, I wouldn't say there was like major events that would have increased knowledge of the, of the language. We had our 1.0 release last year, um, which definitely drew some people to notice it, but I don't, wouldn't know anything else. Like it has been, the community has been growing for, for the past years, definitely. There are always new people showing up, but it's not like there's a single event that could be said that it helped a lot. Nice. Well, congratulations on the release, by the way. That's an incredible milestone. Let's talk about that a little bit. How did you sort of decide now's the time to call it 1.0? I mean, a lot of different projects have different things that they mean by 1.0. Rust has been extremely serious about backwards compatibility, where we're now on they release every six weeks, and it's, so it's now on like Rust 1.60 or something like that. And then you have Elm is still not 1.0 because there are still more breaking changes planned. So I'm kind of curious how, how you thought about that decision and like what does 1.0 mean to you in terms of what people should expect from Crystal? Uh, of course, it's always a struggle. Like when you assign such a tag and say this is something that's stable that, that we want to support and... It has some degree of functionality that we expect to be working. That was actually a, a pretty long path to even like find what this milestone would mean for us. I think in the end, it mostly came down to we've had a good experience with all the, the stuff that's happening. We had some open issues that were closed, but at some point we said, okay, we are pretty stable at this point. And we could say that Crystal can be recommended to be used in production. And already many people were, were using it despite not being one other. And then it was just the idea, okay, let's say, give it a name and say, we are sure that it is safe to use so people can start adopting it and don't have to fear that we'll break things in just the next release or something like that. And yeah, going from there, we are also keeping backwards compatibility pretty high. We, we try to stay compatible to 1.0 until we reach 2.0, which is actually a bit sad because we have, of course, lots of things <laughs> that we would like to do, but <laughs> they are going to break things. That's a different topic, how, how to move on from 1.0. But for the time being, we, we're happy with 1.0 branch and adding new stuff in a way that's backwards compatible. So I think it was mainly what Johannes said about not breaking backwards compatibility. So having language that people can rely that it won't change and it will get better over time, but without you having to change code. And I think that there was always the feeling of we can still like keep adding things or new things to the language, but every new feature has to interact with everything else. <laughs> sure. And a lot of people were using it and were happy with it. Uh, so maybe that was like good enough. And then it was about, okay, but we have these things that we didn't quite solve or, or decide what we want to do for 1.0. Let's decide those and let's like freeze the languages API and functionality. And then after 1.0, it's improving things, maybe adding new methods and so on, but not changing the existing ones. Nice. So uh, it sounds like there's already a, a backlog for 2.0. It's like, this is a good idea, but it's blocked on 2.0. And 
are you thinking about a timeline for that? I mean, I know you said part of your intention with 1.0 is to convey the expectation that, hey, we're not going to break stuff for a while. Do you have a sense of like what kind of time scale you're thinking about? Is that like a couple of years, a couple of months? No, that's completely uncharted terrain for now. Okay. <laughs> I think we, we'll see as we go. I guess the main point for me is to say, okay, we have 1.0, we're going to support that for a certain time frame, which we, we don't know how, how long that is yet, but we could even like release 2.0 within that time frame, but then we would support two major versions. That should be fine as well, I guess, but we should try to aim to not have too much overlap probably. But the we have definitely have ideas for 2.0 and some have already been been merged into the repository and they are hidden behind behind a flag. So you can opt into that behavior if you want, but it's not the default until we reach 2.0. That should allow us some way of easy transformation towards new language semantics. That's cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Nice. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, kind of offhandedly, which was the idea of there's sort of an ecosystem in Crystal, people making frameworks and stuff like that. One thing I'm curious about is how much overlap is there between Ruby and Crystal when it comes to the ecosystem in terms of, is it common for people to, for example, port popular Ruby gems into Crystal? You know, obviously there's one really huge Ruby project that everybody knows about, which is of course Ruby Racer and, uh, no, just kidding, Rails. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I'm curious, like, have people attempted to port Rails into Crystal? Would that even work given how much metaprogramming stuff it does? Or is that something where instead people might say, well, let's try and do our own take on a big web framework in Crystal and maybe it looks somewhat similar to Rails, maybe not? So a lot of Crystal users come from a Ruby background just because of the similarity. So yeah, we have many, many people putting Ruby gems to crystal shards. And there's even on the wiki, there's a list which names like for this Ruby gem, you can use this crystal shard. And yeah, obviously, yeah, Rails is a major thing in Ruby. And so there are actually several tries at transforming Rails into something that works with crystal. So yeah, sure. There are some, some differences you need some more definitions or you you can do less dynamic things, of course, which is a huge part in in Rails. So there there are some different approaches necessary there. There are different projects trying that at different angles and it seems to work, (laughs) at least in in a way that they're happy doing that. But there are also other approaches. So it's not that there's just a single framework that you would use in Crystal, but there are several options you can choose from and some are inspired by Rails. I think there are three different ones, like Lucky, Amber, and Spider Gazelle, are all taking slightly different approaches there, but trying to stay with that the Rails vibe. Very cool. So like I know one of the things that Rails is really big on is, for lack of a better term, extending the standard library and adding all these extensions is that culturally something that people do in Crystal? Not even necessarily with some of the you know Rails alternatives in Crystal, but just in general. Is that uh, a popular thing to do? Is that, that even like encouraged or supported by the language? How do you feel about that? It's possible to do in Crystal, <laughs> like in Ruby. So that's that's the first thing. Like in in some languages, you you can't even like reopen standard types, for example. 
you can do that in Crystal. And I don't know, it's encouraged maybe, but not super decided yet, I think. I mean, I personally am not very much a fan of that. Some people like it more, probably. It's not pretty clear. In Ruby, it's okay. Rails uses this. It's coming from active support and everyone uses these standard extensions. And it's pretty much an omnipresent extension to Ruby standard library. And that's not something that we have in Crystal right now. Individual shards might, might add some methods to standard types and do their thing with that. But it's not like a concise system of extensions. And I think that wouldn't be necessary to have, hopefully. <laughs> Yes, and just by chance, I don't know why, but today I was browsing Lucky site. I didn't check the R frameworks, and there was a link to the API, and I opened it, and I saw some extensions to the standard library types, but there weren't that many. And I was wondering, like, why they were needed. Maybe, maybe suggesting not doing that. So there are two things about that. In my mind, extending stand, standard library objects or even other library objects is fine in the end product because you're in control of that. And if nobody else in a library does, does it, then there's no conflict. So like in the application. Right. Yes. Uh, because that nobody depends on that application. So there's no conflict, but then adding extension methods in a certain way in crystal would be safe or safer than Ruby. Because in Crystal, you can add a method with type restrictions. So let's say I define a method, hello, that takes a greeter that's of type greeter that I define in my library. That can conflict with anything else because it's or very unlikely that someone will define a hello method with a greeter from that library. They can define hello with another type. There's no conflict. Like The, the compiler will solve it. But if there are no arguments, that's maybe more prone to conflicts. And I wouldn't encourage that. <laughs> and what, one thing to note with respect to active support, which provides these extensions in, in Ruby or Rails, is that many of the good things about that, I would say, are already in, in Crystal Standard Library. So you don't need an extra tool for that. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I think when it's part of the standard library, then most of these problems with adding methods to types to have fancy behavior is, is not that big of an issue because it's a standard library. Nobody else can argue with that, um, <laughs> that it's there. <laughs> right. I want to go back. So briefly, you mentioned that packages in Crystal are called shards. I know a different languages do this in different ways. Like some languages will have a built-in package manager like into the compiler. Like in Elm, you can just like install stuff directly from there. Other languages will have no concept of packages in the compiler, but there's sort of a like a canonical third-party thing like Ruby Gems is a good example of this that kind of everybody uses. And then there's other languages where it's kind of a mix where like in Rust, technically there's a Rust compiler and technically there's the cargo package manager that's technically separate but they're shipped together they're made by the same people and everybody uses it and there's some degree of like language support that's certainly designed around cargo how does that work in crystal yeah i think it's pretty similar to the rust cargo situation um so in crystal we have shards and that's also the name of the dependency manager shards it's also developed by the crystal team and sh usually ships together with crystal but it's actually 
I would say a pretty generic dependency tool. It's not really tied to Crystal. So you, you could use it to manage other dependencies as well. Just nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> so as in like, you could use it to manage like C++ dependencies if you wanted to. Yes. Huh, cool. The idea was to have the dependency manager inside Crystal, like inside the Crystal executable. And it actually started like that, but it, it wasn't like a very good dependency manager. And someone else did something else called shards. And it was really good. And eventually we, we made the dependency manager from Crystal delegate to shards. And eventually we said, okay, let's drop that and just use shards. And what Johannes was saying is that to compile a Crystal program, you give it the, the initial file and there are some standard paths like lib and subdirectories inside it are looked for dependencies. So if you build that tree yourself, Crystal will find everything it needs to compile. And Shards just fetches things from GitHub or from GitLab or other sources and puts that in lib and manages, manages that. But you could use another tool that puts things into lib and that's it. Very cool. What's the story behind how Shards came into existence? Like, was it something that you had planned from the beginning when you started making the language? I'm kind of guessing not based on you know how it was just sort of a hobby project. Or, you know, at what point did it, was there just demand for a package manager? And it's like, oh, let's, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think we always had that idea from experiences from other languages that didn't have package managers. I can't remember which ones. That it was nice to be able to organize, to easily fetch and, and organize and version dependencies in that way. I think it was sometime before that, we started using Bundler. Oh, really? Yeah, I think uh, uh, we were using Ruby back then when Bundler didn't exist. And eventually it, it, it appeared and it changed everything. Like it made things really more easy, I guess. And we wanted that same thing in Crystal. But we were developing the, the language. So we kind of had the idea of a package manager like Bundler, but decentralized. So there's no registry, central registry. But we were like, we wanted to spend time working on the compiler. So we did just the minimum thing for the dependency manager. We were just, just fetching something from GitHub, I think. And then this other project came in that said, maybe you wanted this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Very cool. Any good like war stories from the development of Crystal? Like any really interesting projects or like really surprising challenges that ended up being difficult to solve along the way? I'm sure there must have been something because every big software project seems to run into these inevitably. So this one, it's pretty old. It's just when we started the language, we thought about this global type inference thing. And so there were two phases, but you didn't need types anywhere, like the type of class instance variables were inferred from usage and the type of array literals. You started with an empty array and as you added items to it, it would infer the type based on what you added and so on. And the compiler was extremely slow. Like it didn't scale, like for small programs it worked, but then it was like abysmal performance. So, and we spent like a month or two, I, I don't know how, how much time thinking about like how to solve this problem. And we uh -huh. eventually chose that some 
things had to be typed. The minimum, th- the, the minimum amount of things that were needed to make this like more optimal, and that was like typing array literals or, or collections, unless you had items, initial items from which you could you could deduce the types, the type of instance variables. Actually, that came later. But now type of instance variables are mandatory and another thing is procs or like lambda, lambda functions, they need to be typed. But yeah, there, there was a time that we were trying to solve this uh, without changing that and eventually we changed it. But I think it was good because some amount of types has documentation, especially like you have this type, this is how it's formed. That seems to be pretty common. Like there's a lot of languages. I mean, Rust is an, another example of that, where you have to put types in certain places, like the, the types of functions. But once you've done that, it can infer the the rest of the types. That's pretty interesting. I, I wonder about what other design decisions for the language were influenced strongly by the implementation, where like initially you had one design in mind, and then, uh, or maybe you're just like, let's do this exactly like Ruby does it. And then as you get into implementing, it's like, eh. Actually, this has a drawback with Crystal that you know maybe doesn't exist in Ruby or something like that, and you're like, let's change the design. Any anything come to mind like that? Yes, there's one thing which is so initially, if you have a variable that would hold two different types, that would form a union, let's say an in and a string, and let's say you have a parser that has nodes like a number literal node and a string literal node, and then array expression now and so on and all of that go into a hierarchy in object oriented programming like you, you would have an ASG node base type and as you parse these things you become to have like small unions like you either have a string literal or an integer literal and then you add maybe you parse a bit more as the compiler resolves the code you get an array array literal and then you get a union of three things and then you get a union of four oh, things. Right. Or maybe you get smaller unions that get union and like it's <laughs> like you get an explosion of different union types and that slowed down the compiler a lot. So we made a choice that if you have a hierarchy of types and you have two types in that in that hierarchy that form a union, the union is resolved to the parent type or to the most immediate parent type. And that parent type is actually, it's a type that's that parent type or any subtype. So you lose a bit of type information there because maybe you did a union of two things, you got the parent, but there's another third thing that you didn't actually put in that union that could be considered, but it's a trade-off because it improves compile times. And usually when you get a union inside a hierarchy, you you want to consider any element in that hierarchy. That's not always the case, but worst case scenario, you cast things down. Okay, so let me make sure I understand. So an example of this might be in one array, you have, it's an array of numbers, which could be like integers, floats, whatever. And then in another array, you have an array of specifically integers. And then you add those two arrays together. Normally it would say, I infer that this resulting array is an array of the union of integers and numbers. But in Crystal, for performance reasons, you'll collapse that down automatically to just say, you know what, that's just an array of numbers because integers are like a subset of numbers. Do I have that right? Yes, except that for numbers, we don't do that because they are structs. Or actually, yeah, but it's because, yeah, it's a special rule. But a similar example could be with the classic animal, cat, dog, and okay, I don't know, sure. Cow. 
And so if you have an array of dogs and an array of cats and you join those, you get an array of animal, even though you never put a cow there. Oh, okay. So it's not even, I understand now. So it's not even like you had something that was an array of animal and an array of cat. It's like you have an array of cat and an array of dog. And we're like, you know what? This is an array of animals. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That's interesting. Do you know of any other languages that do that? That's like the first time I've heard of that technique being used. No, I don't think so. Nice. This is a crystal original. All right. Somebody better write a paper about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a good topic to close on. Sometimes people will write papers and then somebody will make a language based on the paper or somebody will write a make a language so that they can write a paper. But these days, it seems increasingly common that people will make languages just for fun and never engage with any of the academic side of things. Is that anything of interest to Crystal? Is that something you plan on doing or would like to do is like write a paper about some of the stuff you did or present it at an academic conference or something like that? Or just like, eh, just happy to uh, stay in a, on the industry side or the hobbyist side? What do you think? Yes. Do you know if <laughs> Because I, I know that there was a, like a, some idea about that, but I don't know. You maybe know more, but I don't know. Yeah, we actually have the current leader of the core team. He is a language researcher. Oh, cool. Sadly, there hasn't been much time to do actual, like, <laughs> sure. write, write a paper about Crystal because there's so many other demanding things. Yeah, but that's definitely an, an angle where, yeah, some of this academic can influence the language. And definitely there are, are ideas uh, for, for also improving things. Very cool. Anything else we should talk about before we uh, wrap up? I wanted to share another like fun story. Please, yeah, great. <laughs> For a long time, there's been a wish to have a REPL in, in, in Crystal, like uh, read, evaluate, print, and loop. But that's just hard to do with a compiled language, right? There has been a community project which kind of simulated that um, with like recompiling the program and inserting previous state into that and whatnot. And you could get around to some degree for, for debugging with, with using just standard debugger like, like GDB or something. Yeah, but sometime last year, Ari came around and said, hey, well, listen, I, I've been trying out to write an interpreter for Crystal and it's looking cool. good. <laughs> uh, give, give me some time and I present it. And yeah, so now we're, it's not, not yet totally finished because there are really some obstacles to, to getting that, that to work all correctly and integrate. But yeah, we, we on the verge of having an interpreted crystal, which is really awesome. Awesome. That's super cool. Well, congrats on getting so close to a milestone like that. And I guess we'll look out for a blog post about that <laughs> or, or an announcement of some sort in the future. Great. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. This is really fun. And I, I learned a lot about crystal and about some type checking stuff. And thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us.